0: i there, and welcome to the rolling coverage of Ossert's 2014 conference here on Risky.biz. I'm Patrick Gray. And you're about to hear a recording of a presentation by Bob Clark, who these days teaches at the US Naval Academy. He has a long history as a Department of Defense lawyer, including a stint as the counsel for the US Army Cyber Command. And in this talk, Bob covers some ground he's covered before, uh, really looking at when an online action represents an act of war under the uh, laws of armed conflict. But he also takes a look at some legal cases. Uh, in the civilian world involving the CFAA, uh, which is very interesting, and I hope you enjoy it. So, what we're going to talk about today, the agenda, uh, some things. You know, where we've been, what's going on, and cyber and law act, is it easy or is it hard? Um, One of the things, the bottom line I want you to take away from this aspect, the bottom line up front is the, I want you to leave here knowing that, as far as the Judge Advocate Generals of our armed services, they are involved in all aspects of legal reviews of cyberspace operations, from so computer network defense, exploitation to attack if needs be. So we're going to talk about some of those legal reviews that they do. So they are trained and knowledgeable of every aspect of operational law as applied to cyber, and their client is the United States Constitution. It is not a commander. It is not the president. It is the people of the United States to follow the Constitution, Unfortunately. Our Judge Advocate General, the, the actual Judge Advocate General of these services, will tell you, you get to do the right thing at the end of the day. So it, it's kind of a, a great aspect to be there. I am going to talk fast, so you need to listen slow um, on this. I've got a lot of slides. When I go through a lot of the slides quickly, that will kind of show you how important or unimportant those particular slides are uh, from that aspect. So where we've been uh, in the past. Uh, so since I've been here last, We've gone through uh, a little kiss-and-tell book, Aspects of Life. Uh, The Talon Manual came out uh, by our international experts applying law of armed conflict to cyber warfare. PPD-20 came out, uh, governing cyberspace operations for the United States government. And last time I was here, uh, Ukraine looked like this, and uh, now looks like this. so things have changed a little bit around the world, which isn't really big for the United States because we don't know where the Crimean and the Ukraine actually are. They took a survey, and each one of those dots is where people in the United States th- thought the Ukraine was. I like the two over here in Australia, but I really like the fact that there's four in the United States. Um, uh, and and people thought we should get involved if it was actually in the United States. Now it's amazing that we don't know where you know the Ukraine is because like all our money from computer crime is going there, so we should kind of know where our money's going uh, when we're online from this aspect. So be worried about Americans and geography, because you, know, you could end up looking like this um, if you trusted us. Um, at the Naval Academy, we've uh, stood up an actual cyberspace operations major. We're in our second year. So we've got a total of about 80 midshipmen going through it to get majors in cyberspace operations. And there are two required classes that every midshipman going through must take as a freshman and then in their third year to educate them on cybersecurity. I've got to take a break. I'm going to go through this really fast before we get to LOAC because there was a great case with Weave. Actually, uh, went to trial and, on that, so I just real fast going through the Weave case. Weave was the iPad hack that app happened way back in the day when AT&T, you had to register it, and it's part of your ID that you got. you, you actually was your email address from that aspect in life, and what happened was to make a shortcut on this to log in, you got this 19 or 20-digit number, and... Good old Daniel Spitzer, who did not own an iPad, but wanted to use the 30 bucks a month plan, got a SIM card, wanted to put in a different device, and he didn't know how to register the device, browsed through, downloaded the code to get in there, found out a way to decrypt the code and log in, and when, of course, he logged in, he noticed that his email address was already populated with it, and if he changed one number in the URL, he got someone else's email address. So he tried it a couple more times. And being a good security researcher, finding a, a notable flaw, he did what anyone would do. He automated the process so he could get more information. And then, of course, he told a friend about it, who helped him automate it. And, of course, they got the 114,000 aspects of uh, the email addresses. It was called a brute force attack. We did what anyone would do. He sent emails to the media. Um, emails from the media went to AT&T. They fixed the breach and uh, basically... The Gawker posted the uh, article on that, and we went to trial. Um, so kind of copesthetic when you look at Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the intent aspect of it. He got sentenced to 41 months, but he does a timely appeal. And the uh, on appeal, the U.S. Attorney uh, argued that, look at the fact that Defense Council is trying to say, anybody could do this. But I, I love this because he goes, look at all the steps he had to take to get to the wide open web. Because I, I do the same thing. When I get up in the morning, look at all the steps I take to get to the wide open web. Uh, I, I turn on my iPad and I'm at the wide open web. Um, he's flabbergasted that this could be anything called a hack. He did all sorts of things that I don't even understand what they are. So that you know is now the standard that we prosecute Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. If the prosecutor doesn't know what you've done, we can now prosecute you for Computer Fraud and Abuse Act aspects of life. Kind of a loosey-goosey standard there. Um, The reason they said venue is possible in New Jersey, and and how else could you work in a a picture of the Jersey Shore? And by the way, so all you know, if you've never been to Jersey, this is exactly what it looks like, because everything on the web and TV is true. Um, They said the reason venue in New Jersey is proper is because 4,500 of the 114,000 victims were in New Jersey, so we can prosecute there. Now, going through this, uh, again, we're not good at geography in the United States, but let's go through the geography aspect of this. Spitzer is from California. Weave is, unfortunately, from Arkansas um, in the middle state. One of the servers they got access to openly was in Texas. The other one was in Georgia. So clearly, you prosecute in New Jersey um, on that aspect of life. And uh, so how does this get revo- resolved? Well, it gets resolved with the Declaration of Independence. And in the Declaration of Independence, there were 27 specific offenses you know, petitioning the the British Crown, and one of which was for transferring us beyond the seas to be tried for pretend offenses, which a lot of people in the industry will say the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a pretend offense uh, on on that aspect. And when the court actually cites that to dismiss your case, as the government, you kind of know you're heading in the wrong path and you're about to lose. And so they also mentioned the Constitution aspect in life of where a proper venue for a trial is supposed to be, and they said, no, New Jersey was not it. They dismissed the case, which means when they dismissed it, it was dismissed without prejudice. So the U.S. Attorney's Office can bring the suit again and, and, and possibly a possible you know, venue of this. So we'll see if they decide to prosecute we for this. The moral of the story, if you get an encrypted thumb drive and you go to the Apple Genius Bar to decrypt that thumb drive and it tells you to go to New Jersey... Specifically, Wheaton, New Jersey, and you decide to avail yourself and actually go and make contact with the state, specifically this really cool underground bunker in, in, in New Jersey, and you plug in that thumb drive to a very old computer system that brings a dead professor back to life, you could be tried in the state of New Jersey, um, for Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So, you know, be careful with that. So, cyber war aspect in life. There are magazine articles about it. There are books about it more books about it all over the place books about it manuals that have come out talking about the aspect of it analysis of potential cyber weapons and cyber warfare kiss and tell books on it and my favorite uh Fifty Shades of Cyber Um, I'm hoping George Clooney plays me but probably not um so this cyber thing, and LOAC apply to cyber. It's difficult. It's hard. We don't know what we're going to do. The rules are going to be different than what they are before. So, you know, it's hard to do this thing. Um, it's easier said than done. Still hard. Going to be a hard time tonight. And, of course, we're not being helped because words matter. And good old Mr. Schneier here aspect, he's calling, you know, what, we, what China does, we call a, a, a cyber attack and cyber espionage is a form of cyber attack. Well, with all due respect to Mr. Schneier, that's wrong. And, and the problem I've got is uh, there's a lot of folks in academia who don't practice in this area, there are a lot of folks in the media who, who do this, and, and it makes my life a little harder, that's okay, because you should make your lawyer's life a little bit harder. Um, but law of armed conflict is domain, not domain specific. It applies to every single one of the domains, land, air, sea, space, and cyber. And since 2011, we answered 13 specific questions to the Department of Defense, and said, yes, here are all the aspects of how law of armed conflict is gonna to apply to cyber. The, so that was the Department of Defense. The chief legal officer for the Department of State said, yes, law of armed conflict applies to the cyber domain. And for our military lawyers out there, we have um, a couple courses. There's uh, your typical legal aspects of cyberspace operations and there's also an advanced classified level course that's taught to our judge advocates to make sure we're doing well. Oh, so I gotta stay put. Oh, dang, I'm a wanderer, as you can tell. Okay, so I will stay mirrored to the podium, which my bosses never could get me to do, so on that aspect. So we are teaching our judge advocates several areas of the whole aspects of law of armed conflict So they can go out and be cyber operational attorneys uh, for that aspect. There's no precise definition of a use of force inside of or outside of cyberspace or the cyber domain. The kinetic world doesn't have one. The cyber world doesn't have that. And basically, most heads of states will determine, based on intensity, scope, and duration, whether an attack or use of force has taken place. So is law of armed conflict and cyber hard, or is it easy? Well, you know, to be honest, it's both from that aspect on life. Um, The Hague Conference back in 2010 did a nice study of what a use of force in armed conflict was, setting forth some several factors in the kinetic world on what a use of force is. And again, no precise definition on what that use of force is. The Talon Manual took a lot of the information and applied it, our little international group of experts, to the cyber realm. And again, our international experts. So applying this to all the domains is hard and easy and everywhere in between. And it was, my job as a military lawyer to do the heavy lifting to determine and explain and apply that law to the facts of what a military commander would like to do and make sure they understood the concepts of applying law of armed conflict to the cyberspace domain. They must do the heavy lifting. As one of my first mentors always said, hey, facts are king. Very specific. So, cyber law and policy. Little back, backdrop in terms of how this works. President Obama, apparently all open-source stuff here, uh, signed a presidential directive uh, on this. It updated a directive from 2004. It uh, made cybersecurity a top priority, did not provide any new authorities for any organizations, um, said we're going to pro- do a whole-of-government approach. We're going to make sure we take the least action necessary to mitigate different threats and responsibilities, and we're going to prioritize using network defense and enforcement as our preferred course of action as we go forward. So at your highest level of the government in the White House at the National Security Council, the process is for this. we got you. nobody in D.C. if you don't have a great org chart. And down here, you've got the cyber coordinator sitting there. He reports, Mike Daniels, uh, on this aspect, reports through the National Economic Council head and the National Security Advisor. So he's got two bosses, which is one of the reasons why nobody really wanted this gig, because no one wants to have to work for two bosses. Um, and he chairs the Cyber Interagency Policy Committee, where a lot of the cyber policy is hammered out for the U.S. government. It gets approved from that and goes up to what's called the Deputies Committee, which are like the Deputy Secretary of State, Deputy Secretary of Defense. And if it gets goes approved from there, it goes up to the principals, the actual secretaries from that if it needs to uh, go up to the president for signature it will go up there otherwise they'll issue it out there and we follow the directives from that aspect PBD 21 which we're doing out there, PBD 20 came out of that process from there somehow going backwards there we go, gotta watch my remote so good old Mr. Daniels actually showed up out at the Naval Academy and again emphasize, we are going to mitigate and take the lowest aspects possible to minimize our cyber threats, prioritizing the network defense and law enforcement. And the Secretary of Defense on the same day at General Alexander's retirement, because General Alexander is no longer in charge of Cyber Command or NSA, um, he also said, we're not going to militarize cyberspace. So, So the other key takeaway here is Secretary of Defense says, we do not seek to militarize cyberspace on this aspect. We're going to use, again, a whole government approach focused on network defense and uh, law enforcement to resolve these aspects. Words matter, and and we're not anything if we don't have a lot of words going on from this aspect. You've got the request for comments glossary that sets up certain definitions. We've muckied things up by having definitions in a joint publication 312. PBD-20 has definitions. I'm old school. I actually hate the word cyber. if you need funding for something in the US government now, um, cyber's the key word, so like, if you needed porta potties and you said they're cyber potties, you'd get funding for it. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm old school, computer network operations, I thought it was cleaner that way, so I might be reverting back to some of those terms a- as we move forward and talk about this. From my perspective, I, I, I practice law, or used to for Army Cyber Command, in a very specific area of computer network operations law. And words matter to me. Now, I know if, if I'm reporting on an intrusion, no one's going to pick up the paper and say, uh, intrusion hits Google. because they're going to go, what the hell is that? But if I say cyber attack hits Google, everybody picks up the paper and looks at it and reads it, and at least in our industry aspect in life. But words have specific meanings. And I said here in 2012 that I had yet to see a cyber attack. And, and I was on the phone with some attorneys back in DOD before I even got off the stage, because uh, they didn't like that. And I was very fortunate I said that, because the, uh, the Confront and Conceal came out like a month later, uh, which is an interesting book on that aspect. So I'm glad I said it didn't call it an attack. But the Talon Manual also said, no, they, they didn't reach a consensus that that was an attack. And we'll talk about why certain things were missing from that. It was a use of force. There was destruction. But nobody called it a cyber attack. I, uh, the head of state has to make a complaint. That says, yes, I have suffered a cyber attack, intensity, scope, duration, and X attribution did it. So, words really have a specific meaning for me. You know, events happen on computers all day long. They can be good events, bad events. You know, an incident compromises something coming to my system, intrusions usually are going over more than one system from that aspect, cross agencies and that. But again, using that word cyber attack, computer network attack, has a very specific meaning for. DOD, uh, and actually DHS. So computer network defense, uh, computer network operations, again, I gotta throw my disclaimer out here from this aspect, all the materials unclassified. Looking at the different aspects and authorities for computer network uh, operations. Computer network defense is pretty simple. We, we've got statutes on the book that say, hey, DOD, defend your systems, protect them from that aspect. And we have multiple you know, uh, disciplines that actually make up that computer network defense from your computer network certs and sysadmins and NOSCs out there, law enforcement, counterintelligence, and everybody plays a role and has their inherent authorities on what they can do. My network defenders, my my certs and my NOSCs, can't sit there and go grab attribution and and, and sit there and chase somebody down. But law enforcement and counterintelligence can. That's their job. They're supposed to get that done. So i got to keep everybody in their box for what their inherent authorities are as they're doing computer network defense on that. The authority, uh, you know, again, goes back and forth. And this aspect, moving towards computer network exploitation aspects, um, that's where we start getting into the law of armed conflict. And as we talk about law of armed conflict, UN Charter codified customary international law, said, hey, you're going to refrain from a threat or use of force, to exceptions, Security Council authorizes it, self-defense, you know, knock your socks off if you're facing an imminent attack, an armed attack. Now, the U.S. position has always been more expansive than that, and it came out of the oil platform case back when uh, we uh, were re to protect uh, tankers in, during the Iran-Iraq war. We always said, if we are faced with the use of force in the United States, we're going to respond in self-defense. That was the way customary international law was prior to the charter, and that wasn't negotiated away. So we're going to defend for, uh, against a use of force. That is the minority rule, and my, a minority uh, kind of voice, uh, as cited, actually included in the Talon Manual. But we, we look at that aspect. So authority to do spying on the internet uh, from that aspect. There's nothing under international law that makes spying illegal. Everybody does it. You know, they're spying on us, we're spying on them. So from that aspect, it's commonly accepted customary international law practice that computer network exploitation, spying is not illegal. Now, under the victim state's domestics law, yes. Yeah. It's illegal, and if they get the habeas corpus on you, and as we heard, someone said you're not likely to be in that state unless you're really, a poor hacker, and you got to get, you know, you're in their state. But if you can get the habeas corpus on them and get them into your country, we arguably you could be prosecuted under the domestic law of that victim state for spying aspects in life. But everybody does it, and the non-destructive insertion of computer code into someone's system, again, with nothing else, no violation of law around conflict, because if you're just spying and vacuuming everything up. That's just espionage aspects in life. Now, as far as where we come in as military lawyers on computer exploitation, we have several uh, regulations, Executive Order 12333, um, DOD 5240 actually implements the aspect of uh, intelligence activities, and this happens to be an army regulation, again, implementing that aspect. The Executive Order EO 12333 governs the collection of foreign intelligence for the United States. It has a role for lawyers in there to review the process DOD regulation implementing that says, yes, lawyers are going to be involved and they will review the processes that are going on. The general counsel is going to be there. And specifically, getting down to army regulations, it says lawyers are going to be involved in this aspect to review legality and proprietary of what's going on. Now, that means kind of what I say, Clark's law. I know you've never heard of this. Uh, You've heard Moore's law, Metcalf's law. If you can help me with this one, when you leave here and say, wow. That was a cool law. I'm going to remember that and repeat it and publish it. Hey, you'll help me out. Clark's law, get your attorneys involved early and often. All right, the sooner you get them involved, the better. Also, explain the technology to them at a third grade level because we're going to have to turn around and explain it to a judge or a jury or a senior leader at a first grade level. And hopefully, if you get a good attorney, they know how to ask you the right questions to say what's going on. That's some of the legal training so they can understand the technology on that. And oh, by the way, if you set up something and do something and you change that technology down the road, please include your lawyers there because if you change things around, all of a sudden what could have been okay and within the scope of the law, if you change it a different way without telling your lawyer, he may say, uh, you came up to the point of that and, and now you're on the other side of it. So keep your attorneys uh, in the loop for this aspect. Now for a computer network attack, there are two ways legally this can be done. Title is our statute covering, basically, Department of Defense, and so the president can issue an execute order for that, or under presidential findings, which is Title 50, which is covert activity. Only, and only, if the president gives me an execute order to go do a computer network attack, can I do a computer network attack. Now, the grand scheme of things, as you see here, you got DOD at the top, United States Strategic Command below them, which, under the Uniform Command Plan, UCP, they are charged with cyberspace operations. Below them you have Cyber Command, United States Cyber Command, which is a unified subcommand below STRATCOM. And then the four services provide support to Cyber Command. So where I sat down at Army Cyber Command, we provided support to United States Cyber Command, two different organizations from this aspect on life, and they provided support to our geographical combatant commanders. Because under our scheme, The only organization in the military that can do an attack is a geographical combatant commander. I mean, Pacific Command, they have North Korea to watch out for. Central Command, they have the Middle East to look out for. African Command, self-explanatory. So they're the ones that are getting the support for these aspects provided to them. This is two separate approval processes as it goes forward. You get one for the operational planning. You have your military and all the militaries around the world and the United States plan. That's what their job is. Pacific Command. What would you do if North Korea decided to break the armistice and head across the 38th parallel? It's not like we sit there and say, well, I can't plan. That's illegal. And then it happens like everyone starts panicking and coming up with a plan. They are planning. Basically, they've been planning for aspects of what's going on. After you get the authority to do that plan, to actually execute the plan, again, requires specific authority and execute order to come down to execute that action. Now, militaries routinely conduct operational planning. Back in the day, they were known as war plans aspects. And Paul Walker, Commander Paul Walker of the United States Navy, wrote a great article on this uh, about traditional military activities in cyberspace that kind of lays this forward from this aspect. Again, that's what we expect for security, our militaries to do. They plan things. And as part of planning this, it means we are going to follow the law of armed conflict. We are going to distinguish between combatants and non combatants. We are going to have a military necessity aspect in life. And this is the part of, if you remember in Confront and Conceal, when it went public, President Obama was concerned in the book, again, and I am quoting David Sanger's book on this, it is like, well, wait a second, if we take out the power grid, could that affect hospitals, which is a targeting aspect an issue? And they said, no, we're, we're not taking, we're not targeting dual use purposes. So military necessity means we are targeting specific military targets, aspects of life, and that goes in all the kinetic domains. That, that's from land, air, sea, and space. Proportionality again, you don't want to drop a 2,000-pound bomb on something when something more refined, more precise can handle that in terms of proportionality, because you don't want to cause, you can't cause superfluous injury. That aspect is basically, um, actually, it's the Princess Bride. Um, when uh, he says, I tell you, oh, we're, you're going to put down your rock, I'll put down my, my sword, and we'll kill each other civilized-like. Um, that's, I can't use, you know, glass bullets that can't be seen on x-rays. I have to kill you humanely aspects. I can't use indiscriminate weapons, meaning I can't just shoot a worm out there that's going to take down a bunch of systems, as opposed to being a targeted aspect of what's targeted, specifically looking for, let's say, a Siemens a SCADA system with two particular PLCs, produced one in Iran, one from Finland. Again, a a, a targeted aspect there. And you've got to respect the neutrality of of other countries. The other way that the United States could do a a, a computer network attack is under presidential findings, Title 50. Um, These have to be in writing. They are there to uh, support an identifiable foreign policy objective aspects of life um, to influence political, economic, and military conditions abroad. Um, that's Ronald Reagan's uh, presidential finding for the Nicaragua aspects that we're going to talk about here coming down the road there. And and even if it's released, it's still redacted heavily uh, under the release aspect. So these are in writing. They uh, may not authorize any actions that would be in uh, violation of the Constitution or statutes of the United States. And you've got to keep Congress fully informed of what's going on. This, these were the remarks of, actually, CIA's general counsel uh, on this aspect, that first you're going to look at the aspect of, does it match the constitutional authorities of the president? The Article II powers, Article two is in the constitution that sets forth the powers of the president, as far as commander-in-chief. And it's not a one-time check. It's going to be constantly looked at as it goes forward. Um, the next aspect is that authority to act. W- what is our authority to act in aspect of life? Do we have a self-defense Article 51 aspect to act on this aspect? National defense, part of that. So, again, these were public comments by the uh, uh, general counsel for the CIA back on that for their legal reviews, how they're going to conduct their legal reviews. Now, some of the aspects that have come up lately is cyber attacks and economic harm. It seems to be the financial sector what everybody is concerned about uh, on this. So in the Talon Manual, which uh, was done by a group of international experts headed up by Michael Schmidt, who works uh, at the Naval Justice School, Naval Postgraduate School uh, on that, um, you look at a couple things. Again, the Talon Manual said what customary international law says. There is no definition uh, of what amounts to a use of force. But we're gonna look to those effects that are compar- comparable in the uh, kinetic world to the cyber world to determine if we've raised that level of a use of force. So, they look at, basically, the Nicaragua judgment, which was where the United States was providing support to uh, guerrilla forces down in in Nicaragua. And we look at the aspect of scale and effect. What is the scale effect of support provided? Now, interestingly enough, in in the Talon Manual, it looks at aspects and says, merely funding um, the guerrillas in those operations did not reach that level of use of force, so giving funds to a, a guerrilla organization was not a use of force. And it says, "So, hey, if I'm funding a hacktivist group, not a use of force. But if I'm providing army arms and training them, that's getting to the level of use of force." So the the again the connection they made here is like, if I give the group the malware and training on it, now I'm getting to that level of what would be a use of force uh, in law of armed conflict and cyberspace operations. Again, no definition of what a use of force is, um, but certain categories have been excluded from being a use of force, and specifically economic coercion. Now, you've got to remember, this is 1945 when the manual was written, and they looked at different aspects of what could be a use of force. And they said, economic coercion, not a use of force. 25 years later, they revisited it, again, we're clearly ahead of the Internet aspects in life, and said, nope, economic coercion is not going to be a use of force. But one point I will ask, like, PBD 21 of the United States government listed 16 sector-specific agencies that are critical to the United States. The financial sector is one of them. So the question becomes, has the United States publicly put out there that the financial sector is critical and vital to the national security of the United States, and therefore we're going to defend that? I don't have the answer to that. But it's an interesting aspect. So, Stuxnet and the Talon Manual. Um, As I mentioned, uh, fortunately when, uh, and and I apologize, I should have said, if you have any questions or or heckles, um, shout them out at any time um, on that, so don't be shy. Um, I was very fortunate that when I was here I said Stuxnet was not a cyber attack. And the Talon Manual came out and said the same thing uh, when it was released a little while later and said, yeah, the international experts could not agree if Stuxnet was an actual armed attack aspect on life. What made Stuxnet not a cyber attack, and I took a beating for this, uh, because that part got published in in some press, and then all the commenters were like, who is this frickin' idiot? They may not have said the word frickin', Um, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. Everything about Stuxnet was a use of force. Destruction and the aspect there, from that aspect, targeting, the whole part of it from that. If you listen to certain presentations, Rick Howard of uh, Palo Alto has a great one on it in terms of that. It was a battle campaign in terms of digital certificates were revoked, uh, new certificates were put on. So everything aspects of it looked like a military campaign. The part that I mentioned earlier that was missing would be a leader of Iran step up and say, I have suffered a cyber attack. And oh, by the way, it was attributed to this nation state from this aspect because law of armed conflict regulates... Nation states' interactions aspects. That is why Estonia fell out of being a cyber attack, because they couldn't attribute it back to a nation state actor or actors that were under the effective control of a nation state, which again requires you to go back to a nation state aspect for attribution. So no one in Iran stood up and said, I have suffered a, United Nations, I have suffered a cyber attack, and it was X country, Y country, Z country, whatever. And that was the part that was missing. It was basically scope, intensity, duration of their leaders to say, I have suffered a cyber attack. Everything else of it qualified basically as a, a use of force going forward on that. Um, interestingly, in, in the manual, it talked about the fact the, uh, that, that the malware got on other Siemens systems, um, and it said, uh, just because it was an annoyance, um, didn't violate law of armed conflict of being an indiscriminate weapon. It was very discriminate in that it looked for that Siemens system with the two PLCs on it, and the fact that it got on other systems Well, it didn't damage them, so uh, from that aspect of it, it, in fact, it was an annoyance, and inconvenience, didn't violate the principles of law of armed conflict. Now, when I come to these conferences and I talk to the security experts that actually have to remove the malware from the systems, they're all like, uh, no, there was a lot of damage to this and it cost a lot of money to remove that. And and so it's an interesting aspect of depending which audience you're playing to and whether basically something's just merely an inconvenience and annoying or whether it's actually a, a damage from this aspect. So again, the international expert was uh, divided on whether this was a use of force on that, um, and, and that's the part of being merely uh, inconvenience or annoyed doesn't make it uh, an indiscriminate weapon from this aspect. The experts basically said, you know, again, if we're gonna get to the level of use of force, we're talking about personal harm and damage, those aspects that are comparable to the kinetic world, and we're gonna look at the effects that happen and go on for that. And for our realm and, and, and what we're doing here, facts are really king. I mean, it is very important to look at the facts and apply the law of armed conflict as it goes forward on it. And for our purposes, the president is going to determine, again, scope, intensity, and duration to determine whether we've suffered a use of force or actually if there's been an attack. Any questions? Um, since nobody, since nothing's been qualified as a cyber attack, is the attacks on Georgia? <laughs> yes, I use the word attacks. The intrusions on uh, on Georgia and Estonia were those considered cyber attacks. And the big problem with that was the attribution part, which was missing on that. They couldn't tie. So it, the the issue on this is, if I'm using hacktivists and proxies within a state, can I make that connection to you know, basically it's a nation state to take action on that aspect of it? So proxies. Not non-members of armed forces. I had to prove that they' are in the effective control of a nation state before I can take an action on that nation state. So Georgia, and the analysis aspects of it, was extremely close in terms of if you look at the timings of the attacks, the timings of the pre, uh, prece- uh, preceding uh, cyber actions that occurred in there, you know, they look really close that they were under the effective control aspect of it. But, uh, you know, basically they said, no, we can't tie these back to effective state control, and that's why they did not qualify as cyber attacks at that. But that's that's an excellent point from that. Um, Under the United States, who can conduct a cyber attack? We have a DOD instruction that says offensive cyber operations will be conducted by armed service members of the United States. It's a coded A, and, and they have to be armed services. Now, the President, through an execute order, could override a DOD instruction, not likely, though, He'll, you know, from that aspect. But we have a DOD regulation stating who would be the ones who would actually do a computer network attack. Other questions? Go- yes. Oh. Just go on Why is it important to attribute to a, non-state, uh, to a state actor when there are so many non-state aggressors? Uh, the United States has suffered kinetic attacks from non-state aggressors, 9-11 being the, the major example. So um, there's the fun aspect. Um, attributing aspects, so again, law of armed conflict reg- regulates interactions between states and not individuals. So from that aspect, you know, uh, on that, we actually, after 9-11, Congress passed a statute, the authorization for the use of military force, um, that gave expansive authorities to the Bush administration to go and specifically fight Al-Qaeda and other uh, terrorist organizations on that. So you have the congressional actions that actually declared that organization a terrorist organization so they can respond to it in the kinetic realm. So from that aspect, you know, they can respond to that if Al-Qaeda were to be sitting there doing computer network operations. As a matter of fact, there was a great case where they bombed uh, a pharmaceutical factory in the Sudan uh, in response to the bombing of the coal and some embassies aspects of that. So there's that authority there. Again, back to the aspect of nation-states, law of armed conflict regulates interactions between states and that's why it's important to tie it back to nation-state actors. Uh, the answer to this question may be no, um, but can you talk at all about the decision-making process that occurs to transition from a cyber attack through to, a non, to an actual kinetic response? Okay, so the international strategy that the United States put out uh, back in the day and the DoD strategy for operating in cyberspace point-blank told the world... Um, We're going to follow law of armed conflict. And if we suffer a use of force in any of these domains, we can respond using any of those domains. And so there's been some academic papers written out there that, well, if you suffer a cyber attack, you should respond with a cyber response. And the United States said, we're not tying our hands. There's no law in the law of armed conflict and customary international law does not require us to tie our hands from this aspect of life if we suffer an air attack doesn't mean I have to respond with an air attack uh, from that. So as far as the process to determine what the appropriate response would be, I mean that's the decision making process that for our aspect, the geographic command command, and or your national level aspects of who are advising the president, they're going to make the determination based on applying law around conflicts to the facts on what is the best response for that situation. To sit there and give a you know, a factual aspect of that, it, it can have a variety of factors from that. Thank you for coming. I'm, you know, hanging out at the conference, enjoying the conference very much. Please feel free to come on up with me and, and have any conversations that you want on this. Uh, I'm a lawyer, so we love talking about it. Thank you. <laughs>